Welcome to another edition of Inside Rosenberg and Estes. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we're here with Rosenberg and Estes' estate planning guru, Ted Metzger. Ted, welcome to the show. Let me let me share some a little bit about your background with the folks who are listening and the folks who are watching. So you've been working on estate planning for affluent families, family offices, and uh, even uh, people who are, you know, of more modest means, people like me, for over 30 years. And you help them take advantage of all kinds of uh, tax mitigation strategies that are legal. You also help them uh, sometimes as a byproduct, sometimes intentionally from an asset protection standpoint. And you're really focused on helping people who own real estate uh, with mitigating their tax exposure from a generational wealth transfer perspective, as well as from the perspective of making sure that everything passes seamlessly uh, during the probate process. So it's great to have you here with us, Ted. Why don't you tell the folks who are listening, the folks who are watching, how you got into estate planning in the first place? Hey, uh, thanks, Dave. I'm really uh, excited to be here. This is the first podcast I've ever done. And uh, so I sort of um, got into estate planning accidentally. I started off, uh, you know, quite a few years ago at one of... Uh, New York's large uh, firms, uh, and I was in the tax department, a young associate in the tax department, and there was a change in the um, the IRS estate tax laws at that time, and the firm drafted uh, basically all of the tax attorneys, tax associates, as well as the t &E associates to go through uh, their clients' uh, files and their wills and to make sure that they either complied with the new rules or they had to be updated to comply with the new rules for maximum effect. And really, that's where I got my first exposure. And I really found that it was interesting. I found it more enjoyable than uh, doing corporate or personal income tax work. And from there on, uh, I've been in it. I left there to go to, um, I was at two boutique firms before I came here. And uh there, I really concentrated in the state planning, the state administration, um, but also because in a small firm, you don't just get slotted into one particular area. You, um, I would say you become a more holistic attorney and the firms that I were at did much in the way of sophisticated real estate work, sophisticated transactional work. And that goes hand in hand with estate planning. And, you know, I, I was involved in many of the transactional aspects as well. Yeah. So that's that's my follow up question to this then, Ted. So you're you're at New York's premier real estate firm right now. And you're kind of a you're kind of a unicorn as we walk the halls of Rosenberg and Estes because you're you know the, there's there's few people if any other folks there who have trust and estates expertise. Explain to folks why real estate and estate planning go hand in hand. I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I never met anybody who invested in real estate who wasn't concerned about taxes. But explain to folks how they go hand in hand. You know, for, first of all, it, it's sort of serendipitous that I came to uh, Rosenberg and Estes. The last firm that I was at, uh, of which I was a partner for, you know, 25 years, basically during COVID, 
unfortunately, one of my partners died and the other three, one was planning on retiring and the other two really um, were burned out, decided not to continue. I wasn't ready to retire. And a number of former associates at my old firm had actually come to Rosenberg and Estes and I had good relationships with them. They had actually sent me estate planning work. I knew that Rosenberg and Estes did not have any estates department. And I thought it could be really a good place, good complimentary firm uh, to come to and to bring in estates practice. And I reached out and, you know, the rest is history. I've been here now over two years. And I think the transition has been really well for both me and for the firm. Really going on to your question about the juxtaposition, the, the interrelationship of real estate and estate planning, the real estate, you know, can be a very beneficial asset. And to many of our clients have accumulated great wealth in real estate. Real estate also is often an illiquid asset. You know, you can't just uh, go out and give your broker in order to trade it and sell it, uh, you know, on the next, uh, you know, on the next business day and the asset, you know, becomes available to you. The, which, which has its drawbacks, but also presents great opportunities because of the illiquidity. You know, people who own real estate, and also in the case of closely held businesses in general, really need to be cognizant of estate planning because they want their business, their real estate business, their other business to continue uh, for multiple generations. And without the proper planning, they can be really in a crippled position in the position that they're forced to sell their assets, forced to get liquidity on unfavorable terms and not be able to, you know, pass their wealth, their businesses on to the future generations, um, younger generations in a, in a favorable manner. Really, um, advanced planning is crucial in this area. So Ted, do you, uh, with people who, who are investing in real estate, do you find it's easier to bring up the, the estate planning conversation than just talking to a, you know, talking to a, a, a person or a family in general? Cause my, my experience, you know, in working in working with business owners, the last thing they want to talk about is their death, right? Is it easier when it comes to real estate because of exactly what you said? Like, hey, listen, you know, what, what's going to happen with this property? You don't want, you know, the probate process is onerous. You want to, you want to streamline that. So here's what we need to do. Let me, let me talk to you about how we plan for that. And then you can get into the broader conversation about the rest of their estate. Or is it just as difficult with real estate owners as it is with, you know, the average business person? Well, one can paint with broad strokes. It really depends on the individuals. And, I mean, you know, it does. They're um, across the board and, and you hope that the individuals, the, the older generation people who are running the business, running the real estate will take your advice, will take the time out of their busy lives to do some planning. You know, sometimes successful People in all areas sometimes have very large egos, yep. um, sometimes think they're going to live forever, and it's harder to convince them. Hopefully, they've got a good team of professionals, not just an attorney. Accountants are crucial to my financial advisors. And, you know, hopefully, 
in most cases, I would say they do take the advice of the professionals and at least consider things. You know, one, one of the major stumbling blocks is, you know, people not wanting to lose control. And, you know, it's understandable that, that you know, in many cases, um, you know, family patriarch or matriarch has, you know, been the boss for a long time, has built up the business. And even when they're close family relationships, doesn't want to lose control. And, and so we have to find ways to minimize that and to also make them feel comfortable with slight loss of control or loss of control for certain assets or just not giving them the unrestricted ability to do what they want. Yeah, you know, Ted, uh, one of the things I think that gives you kind of a, a doorway or a, a, uh, an entry point into this conversation is inheritance tax, especially in New York. So can you explain to the people who are listening and, and watching how you uh, how you play an integral role in the, you know, in the mitigation of some of these onerous taxes? So so first of all, to, to just take a step back, currently, everyone has U.S. citizens or U.S. resident aliens, let's say, have a current available exemption amount, which they can use during life or upon death, um, that equals 12.92 million. If you're married, you can double that. So you're, you know, 25.8 million. Sounds like a lot. For m most people, it is. Um, but especially among some of my real estate clients and other business clients, you know, their, their wealth exceeds that. Complicating that is um, basically that 12.92 million uh, exemption only lasts until December 31, 2025. And unless Congress reauthorizes the act that established this, um, basically the exemption goes back to its previous exemption, which is about $6 million uh, in individual or 12 million a couple. So right away, there is a concern to make use of this higher exemption if you need it prior to 2026 when you might not have it anymore. On top of that, New York does not have, in, in its infinite wisdom and making things difficult, does not have the same exemption. It has an exemption about half. It's um, in uh, 2023, it's 6.58 million per person. You know, goes up a little bit with, the, with uh, inflation each year. Under both federal and New York law, anything you leave to a surviving spouse is not taxable, but it's in the surviving spouse's estate. If a person leaves everything to his surviving spouse and doesn't use his or her 12.92 exemption, that unused exemption amount would be available for the surviving spouse to use during life or when he or she died. Now, we still have that 26, 2026 caveat. Um, and that's called portability. New York, besides having, exemption, having an exemption of half that amount, does not have portability. So if you leave everything to your surviving spouse, your surviving spouse might have 24 million, 25 million on the federal level to use, but only has six, her own or his own 6.9 exemption to use if the first spouse to go left everything to the surviving spouse. 
So there's no portability on the state level. The other onerous quality to the New York estate tax is that while it's a progressive rate in most cases, if your estate goes up past the 6.5 threshold, goes 105% above it, so it's about 6.9, they have what's called the cliff. And not only is your estate subject to New York estate tax above on, on monies you pass above the 6.58, 6.9 level, it taxes you from dollar one. So that adds about, you can have no federal tax, but if you exceed the cliff, if you leave 7 million, you won't have everything any- from the beginning. Yes. Comes into play. Yeah. And you know, that can result in, you know, hundreds of thousands, several millions of taxes there. So if you're a New York state resident, or if you have real property located in New York state, you know, you really have to be cognizant of both federal and New York state taxes and, and, and plan for both of them. All right. So the tax element is an important element to consider. Talk a little bit about, you know, and keep it keep it in the language of the layman, because you're talking to a non-lawyer here. I'm a, I'm a non-lawyer. Talk a little bit about the probate process and how you can help people make it help, help people make it easier when properties passing from one person to the next after someone's death. Without any planning, the probate process can be expensive and quite onerous, right? So, so talk a little bit about that, if you will, Ted. The probate process in general is the court process. If When a person dies with a will, with assets that are in his or her own name, not passing directly by way of things like joint tenants with right of survivorship, direct beneficiary designations on insurance policies, on bank accounts and securities accounts. But if there are assets in a decedent's own name without any of those things, they're basically frozen on the death of that person. And they cannot be accessed, they cannot be transferred, they cannot be used to pay debts living expenses passed on until hopefully the person has a will at least until the will is submitted to the surrogates court which is in charge of wills in new york um other states have similar courts either known by surrogates courts probate courts but anyway the will has to be filed a proceeding called a probate proceeding in the case of a will is brought it's a, in, in general, it's a non-adversarial proceeding, but a petition has to be filed. The heirs of the decedent um, have to be given notice. People who would, certain heirs who would take if there weren't a will, not only have to be given notice, they have to either waive service of what's called a citation, which is like a subpoena, giving them the opportunity to appear in surrogate's court and object to the estate. But generally, they they will waive. But they have to we have to send them a waiver. They've got to have that signed and notarized. That has to be submitted, and all of this has to be filed with the surrogate's court. And my advice over the years has changed a bit because they're run by the county, so each county varies. But in general, it didn't take too long unless there was a pressing emergency, and you could do other things in the case of a pressing emergency. The court would review it, 
would and you could get the will basically approved and an executor appointed and the executor is the one who's initially in charge of the decedent's estate you know within a month or so a month six weeks if there were pressing things you could apply for preliminary letters which would get an executor appointed more quickly who could do could deal with the assets, couldn't distribute them to the ultimate beneficiaries, but could do everything else. And that used to be able to be, get that done. And, you know, a court would, you know, issue those in a week, 10 days, very quickly. Really, um, from COVID and continuing until now, the courts have been much slower. And even when you apply for preliminary letters, it, it can take, you know, months. And that's really a problem. It can be a problem. You know, what can be done about it? On a planning perspective, two things. One is the use of revocable trusts. What you may have heard of it as a living trust, but it's a revocable trust that's set up during a person's life. While that person is alive and while that person is competent, it basically acts as the alter ego of that person. The person who forms it, the grantor or the settler, is also the trustee. He or she has complete power over the assets in the trust, um, all the tax benefits. It, it's not a, that, that trust in itself is not a tax saving uh, device. All the tax attributes flow through to the individual grantor, income, expenses, losses, gains. It's still any assets in that trust uh, remain in the person's estate for estate tax purposes. But two things. One is in the event the person gets incapacitated during life, either a co-trustee or a successor trustee can take over administration of those assets very seamlessly. And on death, those assets don't have to go through probate. And the trust has provisions that would be equivalent to those that would be in the person's will. So you know, one can really avoid, for the most part, the time and expense of going through the probate process, going through court, and assets can pass under this trust. Now, for it to be effective, during your life, you have to retitle the assets and put them in the trust. And depending on the type of assets and the extent of them, it can be more or less onerous. Uh, but it can be worth doing in a lot of cases. We also do with that what's called a pour over will. So you would have a will so that any assets that didn't get put into the trust during life would ultimately get put into the uh, trust during death, but we would have to wait for the pro probate process. Um, so business owners, uh, usually uh, they're, the advice from their real estate attorney or the advice from their corporate transactional attorney in the case of a business They'll advise you, hey, listen, set up a special purpose entity to own this asset, and then you own the special purpose entity. So the trust would then be the owner of the living trust would be the owner of the LLC, which owns the building, right? Is that the way you would do it? Yeah, that can be. Also, you know, generally, if, you know, most, especially investment, commercial, you know, real estate, you know, clients don't have it in individual names. They will have it in entities, as you said. And, you know, for continuity, you can have managers and substitute managers and officers appointed who can run those entities uh, after the death of, 
you know, the principal owner. Even if a probate process is going on, you know, those entities have management distributions can be made. Sure. So your your LLC, your individual LLC would have an operating agreement and a management succession uh, agreement yeah. in place. Uh, it's just the the trust would be would be the owner um, and instead of you in your name. And if it's a revocable trust, you still make all the decisions. So there's no That's loss right. of control. It's That's just right. for for probate purposes. And then, Ted, would you would your guidance be you have that one revocable trust, that one living trust, and then all the assets could be, you know, could be titled in that trust's name. You don't have, you don't need separate trusts for each no. asset. You could have the one trust and all the assets would be titled in that one trust's name. Right. But it makes it really clean when you're, when, when you're, when you're doing the, when, when you're handling the estate after that person's passed away. Right. Though, as you pointed out, I mean, it's certainly, you're going to have, you know, as special purpose entities or separate entities for, you know, individual assets. Um, and, you know, especially individual, you know, real properties, or even, you know, often you'll have an operating business, um, maybe another business, but may own real estate, and the real estate will be in one entity, and the operating business will be in another entity. Well, that, that's that's kind of best practice, right? You want to separate that. Yeah, for, I mean, yeah, for, 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 from a risk from a risk perspective. Right. Yeah. You know, now, again, this doesn't uh, deal with the tax issues. You know, some significant planning can be done during life to remove a lot of the accumulated value, uh, particularly particularly in real estate, to lower generation, you know, younger generations, while still keeping, you know, a stream of cash flow going up to the owners. One thing I'm working on now, and we've done with great success in the past, um, is called basically a sale and then a, a, a gift and then a sale on an installment basis to what's called an IBGT, um, an intentionally defective grantor trust. Can we go into this? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a little I, I love this. Is, listen, I could talk about this all day. So um, go for it. Tell me about I, I and I love the name. So it's intentionally an intentionally defective grantor trust, IDGT. Right. Go for it. Explain what it is. So basically, your old your older generation person who's got the wealth of real estate and has it, and best thing is to have it in an entity first makes a gift using up his or her available exemption. So theoretically, $12 million. million. Yeah. Makes a gift of $12 million in membership interest or limited partnership interests of an entity or entities that own real property to this grantor trust that, and this is, this is an irrevocable trust right. that is set up for the benefit of children, grandchildren ad infinitum. And the reason we call it defect, an intentionally defective grantor trust is that even though when you make this gift, it's a taxable gift for estate tax purposes, and so uses up your exemption, for income tax purposes, it is not considered a gift, and the income attributes still flow back to you. 
So if there's income on this property, even though you're not getting it, the beneficiaries of your trust are getting it, you're paying the taxes, which you might say is, whoa, that's bad. But really for estate planning purposes, it's good because paying the taxes is depleting more money from your estate and your heirs, lower, lower generation beneficiaries, you know, are getting more money free and clear. In addition, when we say giving $12 million in value away, if you're giving a gift of an interest in an entity that owns real property, the amount of interest you can give or, or the, the value is discounted basically because that person, the lower generation person, the, the donee does not have generally have control and there's illiquidity. That person doesn't have free transferability of the asset. So one can all, often get a 30 to 40% discount on the value of the gift, meaning, let, let, let's see if I can, I'll use an example. So let, let's say there's a property worth, if you sold it outright, it would be worth $100 million. If you give a gift of 20% of that asset, you'd say that should be a $20 million gift. But because nobody would buy that, 20% from you, knowing that there was, it was subject to an operating agreement and there wasn't free transferability and they didn't have control over the property, they wouldn't pay 20 million for it. They might pay 12 million for it or 14 million for it. And that's where you get the discounted. And an appraisal has to be done. Um, but so a $12 million gift you might be able to transfer $20 million really in value as the starting point. And that's only the starting point because that's the gift portion. You can then go on to sell more of your assets to this trust, which now has, a, has the 12 million value. You can do a multiple of that. The IRS wants there to be some value in the trust, but they do. The trust has this $12 million value. You could gift you not gift, you could sell more interests in your real estate up to a hundred million dollars. And so you sell it and how is your trust going to pay it, you know, pay for it. And that's where it's done on an installment basis. You take back a note, it's got to be secured by the interest that you're selling. And you can use a a fairly low interest rate, a, a minimum interest rate. It, it's gone up. It used to be, you know, 1%, 2%. You know, now the long-term interest rate is about 3.96, 4%. So it's higher. But you can use, you know, in general, a, a relatively low interest rate. If they're income-producing properties, now your trust is going to get that income and they can use that income to pay back on the installment note. So while that installment note is still in your estate, and if you died, the, the, the trust would have to pay that back to the estate and it would be included in the estate for tax purpose purposes, future appreciation on all of that gifting and all that sales price, which again, you can use discounting for, gets out of your estate.
and it can be a very powerful tool. Now let's let's talk about just briefly about irrevocable trusts because uh, you know I had a I had a mentor who told me that ownership of assets wasn't something he was striving for it was control of assets more than more than ownership he was a very risk averse person explain when you would use irrevocable trust and we're not talking about like Medicaid planning that sort of thing when would you use for for wealthy families or folks who own real estate, this is one instance where you would use an irrevocable trust. Um, explain how you use irrevocable trusts as a tool. Well, you know, what I described is one way. Right. And in the irrevocable trust, it's not that the grantor would control that trust, but the grantor or the older the generation yeah, explain who the, the, the grantor is. The, the original, the original owner yeah, the of the asset is the, the older generation person, right. and okay. the, the original. But in the entities, the grantor, the entities can be structured so that you know control is divorced from value to a certain extent. So, you know, the the, the easiest example is a limited partnership where the general partner controls but they only have a 1% interest in the value of the partnership. The limited partners have the other 99%. And if the, you know, substantial gifts are made of limited partnership interests, um, that gets value out, that gets a discount out, but the general partner, the older generation person still maintains control um, over the general partnership. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a interesting. Partnership. So when you're when you're forming an LLC as well, it can be structured that way. When you're so when you're forming an irrevocable trust, the grantor by nature can't have control of anything. Right. So the so there's the to people who don't know, there's the grantor, right? Then there's the beneficiary, the person who's getting who's going to get the benefit, and then there's a separate the person, the trustee, the trustee who trustee. controls everything. Right. Does there need to be arm's length between the grantor and the trustee? How, did, how is that determined? No, no. Often the trustee is a beneficiary of the trust as well. Ah, okay. And, you know, there are more technical rules. You know, if it's a, if you want it to be a generation skipping trust where it continues past your children and goes to your grandchildren and even, you know, great grandchildren, if you don't want it in the estate, of a child or children who are the trustees, they can have unlimited power. There are certain restrictions on them and you may need an independent, quote, independent trustee who doesn't necessarily have to be really independent, but, you know, at least on the face, um, can't be certain people and has to have some independence, uh, you know, to make other decisions regarding distributions of principle. Yeah, that it's fascinating to me that the structure that you talked about where the general part, so the the grantor could be the general partner in whatever that asset is, still have control, but not, but have a, you know, have very little ownership. So the ownership could pass into the, into the irrevocable trust, but the grantor could still be the general partner. Yes. I mean, yeah, now that's, they're, they're, a, that's a that's a really that's a really interesting structure. Yeah. Now, it is to the extent that the grantor retains control and also still has a lot of value when 
he or she dies, there will not be as much discounting allowed because the grantor, you know, had control at that point. But, you know, you, you, you can't have everything 100%. Sure, sure. You know, one other, you know, another popular type of trust these days is where you can sort of have your cake and eat it too an irrevocable trust um, is called a SLAT, a Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. And this is particularly prop, um, popular, you know, because of this urgency to use your full $12 million exemption while it exists. But people, you know, more modest, we're talking relatively, you know, 24 million, you know, it, it, it's certainly significant. But, you know, if, if you have a married couple, you know, who have 20 or $30 million in assets and, you know, and, ha you know, have children or other heirs they want the monies to go to, and they're, they're worried about losing their, you know, half their exemption if they don't do anything. There's a type of trust, a spousal lifetime access trust, where a spouse sets it up, is the grantor. It's an irrevocable trust. Everything, it's also an IDGT, it's an intentionally defective grantor trust. And basically the income and principal goes to his spouse. The spouse has a right to all of the income. The spouse doesn't have a right to all of the principal, it, but um, has a limited right to the principal. There is no tax on it when it's given to the spouse. It uses up, the couple really isn't giving up income because now the income is coming to the surviving spouse. And, you know, if they're on good terms, that's fine. You know, it's, it's just, just going from one bucket to another bucket. You know, you want to make sure it's not a rocky marriage because frankly, if there were a divorce, you know, the one spouse would have given it to the other. But it uses up the $12 million exemption. The, the caveat is, if the grantee spouse, the spouse who is getting the income and the principal from that trust dies, it doesn't go back to the grantor spouse, to the first spouse. At that point, it would generally stay in trust for the children. So when one spouse dies, like half of the assets might be given up, but often that's acceptable. And both spouses do it for each other. They can't be exactly the same terms. They have to be slightly different terms or the IRS will say there, there's a reciprocal uh, trust rule. But it's, you know, it, it's a, also a very powerful tool and a good tool to make sure that you get the full benefit of that $24 million exemption and still have use of the assets. All right. So let's, um, let's wrap up, Ted, with uh, frequency of review of an estate plan, right? So the one thing, so I counsel my clients all the time about having an estate plan in place. And then my clients, when I drag them kicking and screaming into your office, they sit there, they go through their estate plan with you. And, you know, I, I love talking to you, but they view it as like a trip to the dentist because they got to think about their death, right? And then they're done. They, they breathe this big sigh of relief. You've got them taken care of. You've got their tax situation in a place where it's as good as, it's as, good as it can be for the moment. Then I tell them, okay, you know, it's been a year. We got to go back and see Ted again. 
And the reason they, they got to come and see you again is because they're masters of the universe. They're out there buying six more properties, divesting themselves of interest in certain properties and, you know, inheriting property and connecting with new companies and investing in new companies. And all this stuff happens over the course of a year. And so the plan has to be updated. So they got to sit down with you. Do you recommend an annual review? Because nobody's sitting still. Everybody, things are in motion on an annual basis. So is an annual review what you recommend? Jen, there are circumstances when, where you need to do an annual review. In most cases, I would say no. Um, but number one, you're absolutely right. Estate planning, you know, we're doing it at a snapshot in time and things change. When the law changes or prospectively is going to change, that's a time we notify our clients and tell them, you know, you've got to come in. We've got to look at this. We have to see what we have to do. You know, we may not be, you know, personal situations may change as far as beneficiaries, as far as, you know, just in, in general, people growing up, trusts, terms uh, that are not irrevocable need to be, may need to, need to be looked at and changed. Fiduciaries, executors, trustees, views of clients may have changed. And that's something that we may not be aware of. And so, you know, every couple of years, clients should look at it. And, you know, you're right. If somebody is constantly changing their business or buying or selling different assets, well, the two, one is titling. You know, if, if we're using, you know, an irrevocable term, we need to make sure that they're in the right places. Also, and if this, if, if we're involved, you know, with the business and the real estate, just structuring an acquisition from the beginning is really helpful and it, it is really essential to make sure, you know, if somebody's buying a new building, there are ways to structure it so most of the value goes to a younger generation right away and not to the older generation, which can be very helpful. So, you know, that's where the CPA, the business attorney and the estates attorney really have to interact with each other and interact with the, with the client. All right. So if you're listening to this, you're watching this, you have, you have a, you know, you would consider them your general counsel. Generally, they're your transactional attorney. Make sure your transactional attorney has connected you with somebody like Ted so that you can look at the tax implications of everything you're doing. And if they haven't, connect you, connect, connect with Ted right away. Get your, get your transactional attorney connected with Ted. If your real estate attorney is out there structuring asset purchases for you without the guidance of an estate planning attorney, you should connect with Ted because real estate, I, I, every real estate person I've ever met knows about taxes. But what they don't know is there are there are sophisticated ways to avoid taxes both now and into the future. So those people got to have to connect with Ted. And then finally, if you're if you don't have your estate plan in order and you're you're in any way you in any way care about the next generation and whether or not they have access to those assets in an unfettered way. Uh, in the most expeditious fashion, you got to connect with Ted because, you know, you heard about probate, you heard about tax mitigation, you, there, there, there are so many reasons to have a good estate plan in place. I mean, think of it just from the value of your business. You want to unlock the most value from a business when you're looking to exit. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that the business is properly structured 
and that your ownership of the business is in a place where if you want to divest, you can you can divest quickly and in a way that that minimizes your tax exposure. So, Ted, what's the best way for folks who are who are listening to this or watching this to get a hold of you? They can email me at tmetzger at rosenbergestes.com. You know, they can call me at uh, 212-551-2046. Um, you know, I'd be happy to speak with you. You know, if you're Rosenberg and Estes client, you know, you've got a relationship with another attorney here, contact him. You know, we're all very collegial here. I'd be happy to assist. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for this edition of Inside Rosenberg and Estes. We talked about some really interesting ways to mitigate your tax exposure as well as make things easier for asset and wealth transfer to the next generation. You heard from Ted Metzger. You can find Ted's information directly below where you're watching this, if you're watching it, and directly below where you're listening to this in the show notes, if you're listening to it. Until next time, my name is Dave Lorenzo. My guest today was Ted Metzger, the estate planning attorney here at Rosenberg & Estes. We'll see you soon.